Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by Black feminist sociologist Jacqueline Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation, and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. Today's discussion is with Dr. T. Anansi Wilson, an Associate Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law and the Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Black Life and the Law. They received the PhD in African and African Diaspora Studies from UT Austin and their JD from Howard Law. Their work is interdisciplinary and explores Black and queer responses to refusals of and routes beyond the social order of the West. Uh, thank you for uh, making the time to be here. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself, um, talk about a little about yourself, what you do, your research, and what made you go into grad school and finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, originally I'm from uh, Southeast Kansas, and it's always so fun to think about it because, you know, people forget that there is a black Midwest that uh, is separate and apart from the rest of the Midwest, but also all black people are not from the south of the coast, right? Uh, so I think like being part of that, being part of the black Midwest is really central to who I am as my identity, but also to how I got to where I am. You know, so my family actually, you know, escaped from a plantation in Missouri. Uh, and ran over into Kansas, right, in the late 1840s. Uh, and before that, right, had come up out of the South and traditionally had first come to the United States via slavery in North Carolina. So this kind of through the South and up toward the Midwest. And then you know, obviously you have these, you know, these other migrations that are happening. Uh, so it's really interesting to kind of think about and think through the work that I do in terms of like fugitivity and this notion of kind of furtive blackness of always kind of being inside of law uh, insofar as being reached by the law's uh, disciplinary arm, but outside of law insofar as always having the law being unable to uh, protect you, right? The constitutional rights never really attaching to the black body. So anyway, from Southeast Kansas, okay. uh, grew up in Kansas City, went to school, an undergrad at Tufts, uh, Worked with Christina Sharp there, who's like my intellectual mother. Love her to death. Um, Even over here in the literary world. (laughs) Listen, listen. It's you know, and it's talk about crossing disciplines. You know. (laughs) Yeah, we don't talk enough about like, you know, who who are your kind of not just your interlocutors, but who are your kind of intellectual ancestors, right? Who was the first black person you had as your professor? (laughs) And for me, I had someone else, but it was kind of like a sociology course. I was like, whatever, I don't really care about this. But, you know, Christina Sharp was my advisor in undergrad. And she also was like the first time I had a black person, a black woman be my professor. And I was taking her class that actually in the wake is based off of uh, Memory for Forgetting and uh, Black Feminist Thought, Mm -hmm. which is just really, really insightful. And she was like, you know, 
you're, we kind of went through this work. And so where do you see yourself in 10 years? And ironically, now was like the 10 year point of that conversation. I said, you know, I'm going to be, I'm have my PhD in black studies. I'm also going to be a law professor and I'm going to start this center for the study of black life and the law, looking at the way that law orders and disorders black living and dying. And so 10 years later, that's exactly <laughs> kind of what I'm at and what I, and what I'm doing. But from, um, from Tufts, I went to, I actually taught for a year down here in Florida uh, through the shit show that is Teach for America mm. in Little Haiti in Miami, which was quite <laughs> an experience. Uh, and then from there, I went to law school at Howard, kind of focused on critical race theory, did a summer and a half abroad in South Africa working on um, international criminal law and comparative constitutional law. And then finally, after that, I did my PhD at UT Austin, African African Diaspora Studies, basically looking at like the role that the Constitution plays in kind of animating, uh, an animating Black life, right? And again, ordering and disordering Black living and dying. Uh, and so there, I worked with uh, Carly Thompson Marshall, who's just amazing. Stephen Marshall, who's dope. Uh, had a little bit of time. Well, also on my, I can never not shout out my other mother, Imani Perry, who was also on my committee. Mm-hmm. Just, just dope, just dope group of folks. Xavier Liverman. And folks that are just, you know, writing, uh, I would say, against the law in particular types of ways, um, against the law of what, like, Anthony, Far- Anthony Farley might call, like, the law of the neo-Confederacy, mm-hmm. right? This idea that, like, the law is always obsessed with subordinating Black people in the equation, however you want to write it, is always white over Black, white over Black, white over Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thinking about, like, how do you do this in a way, for me at least, thinking with Christina and thinking with Imani and Shirley and Xavier, it's like, how do you tell a story that is true but also is not obsessed with the ruptures, right? Isn't obsessed with kind of like, you know, what Hortense Spillers calls the kind of just racial hieroglyphics mm-hmm. or thinking with, you know, our other our other auntie out there, Cydia Hartman of this kind of obsession with the scenes of subjections, right? The kind of violence of it. So like, where's the beauty in the words, right? So how do you tell a terrible history, a terrible story while also speaking about the beauty of black life at the mm-hmm. same time in the face of terror, not as refusal, yeah. but just as mere existence, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's my uh, that's my journey. That's wow, that was that was a that was a journey. I mean, you went, I know you <laughs> went on it. That's your life. <laughs> I was like, wow, look at that. So, so many questions. Where do you start? While you were going through this, right? How did you figure out? Well, this is for me. This is not for me. You you mentioned how like you had this plan. Like I wanna. I want to teach. I want to get the law degree. I want to. <laughs> I want to do this. Did you know that from the get go? Did you mm-hmm. have? Um, I guess was it like influencer influencers? I was watching the circle <laughs> last night. Uh, <laughs> did you have like people in your corner who influenced you in a direction, or did you think see things throughout your undergrad, or maybe just being in academia? You're like, I want to do the complete opposite of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, how did how did you arrive to these conclusions? I you know I I give a lot of credit to Christina Sharp and to Imani Perry. I think as my two uh, most important uh, kind of mentors and influencers and uh, caretakers <laughs> of me, my my sister, mama, aunties. Um, but I, I I'll also say that a lot of this started way before. It started like in my childhood, right? Uh, growing up before I moved to Kansas City in rural Kansas, and my grandmother raising us and my mother you know being a single mother but having children at 17 um, me being the first and also being deaf in one year and 80 percent deaf in the other and it's listening to her experiences uh going through school about you know her putting in a in a track of the mentally disabled because she was dyslexic because she couldn't hear and no one listened to her because she was a black girl 
right? So this whole life being treated as if you don't know anything. You're not an authority on your own body, right? And then, you know, her having kids and being in these abusive relationships and still just being like someone with a heart of gold. And that was always inspiring and terrifying to me. That someone could be so good and so kind and be treated in these particular types of ways. That someone could work so hard and still have a terrible struggle of a life. And even as like a young child, that didn't sit right. It was like, something's not right. Like, I see how hard you work mm -hmm. and I see how the world is treating you. Yeah. I need to understand more. And so in living with my grandmother, you know, she was just very free range with kids basically but she was also very strict when it came to knowledge so she would have us like read and memorize you know martin Luther king entire speeches and langston hughes and maya angelou and memorize them and then recite them and then critique them right and you can imagine trying to critique maya angelou at 10 years old right but my grandmother's thing was if you have no critique you haven't read mm. or you don't understand because there should always be something you can say whether it's at the level of a, a scholar is one thing right but you should have something to say if you thought about something uh and i and my grandmother at that time she was like i would say in her 40s she was very young working like 14 hour shifts at 3m so for see her again doing all this labor not really getting ahead was something interesting to see. And we were the first kind of family on the east side of town that was black, right, to own a house over there. And so that was just really crazy because she took this rundown shack and turned it into this like two or $300,000 house, right? Bought it for $10,000. And of course the white folks are really mad about that. So watching my mother and my grandmother combat these systems uh, as black women, as single black women, right? On their own, building houses with their hands, having no real education at the time and still not really getting ahead was something that stuck with me and it really imparted with me, not this kind of idea of hard work. I think that is such a really weird capitalistic notion. Oh, you, you need hard work and grit. No, mm -hmm. you need good sense. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to figure out the rules of the game, right? And so my grandmothers really taught me that and they all really imparted upon me this notion of learning as much as possible, uh, standing on the truth, being a good witness and being critical of everything around you because there's no reason that people should work 14 hours a day and still be hungry, right? Uh, and, and so that really stuck with me. And so they really essentially forced me mm -hmm. to go to school. And so by the time I got there, I was already coming with this kind of working class, Fannie Lou Hamer-esque critique of the world, right? What I had not encountered that was people, was, a, was this kind of endemic, <laughs> this endemic existence of anti-Black Black people. I had no conception of that yet. And I was like, what in the hell is going on with all these like rich black people, um, both from the United States, but also from the Caribbean and Africa that have all these anti-black mm. notions. Mm. And I had never had a language for it because like in rural Kansas, everybody black was related. They're all my cousins. So we weren't mm. talking uh, <laughs> in these explicitly anti-black ways. Uh, and mm. so I, I think I realized at that point that, you know, the whole being just a lawyer or being in some place I'm making a lot of money as in banking or something crazy like that was not going to sustain me because I could not go into a position where anti-blackness was the cost of admission. Mm. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to be able to have a career where I could think deeply uh, and tell the truth and not be too quickly fired. And I also knew I had a terrible relationship to obedience. <laughs> So I could not have a boss that was going to be <laughs> looking over my shoulder all the time. And so I realized that if I just got the PhD, I could be some I could be somebody that was way too problematic and political at the school and they could get rid of me. If I just had the law degree, you know, maybe they would try to kick me out of the bar. 
you know. So I realized mm -hmm. I needed to be able to support myself in multiple ways. So it was important to have the JD and the PhD, both for job security, but also because I was interested in thinking about like and understanding that the law is the most powerful tool in the country. And I needed to understand mm -hmm. the law, not just from the legal way, but also from a black studies standpoint and black studies through a legal standpoint, because I feel like too many black studies scholars just talk about the law uh, as this kind of rhetorical device. And they don't actually understand the rules of the law. And so some of their scholarship, it sounds really pretty, but it has no basis in reality. So and I did not want to be one of those people who just do interesting rhetorical, I don't know, gymnastics or something. Yeah. And that's that's definitely a fact and I guess I I'm always I'm always a fan of interdisciplinary in the sense of like you need one in order to better inform yourself of the other. And um mm -hmm. depends on who your faculty members are though. <laughs> so can you tell us a little about if you if you faced pushback and you seem pretty determined in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, like knowing this is what you want to do and this is how you want to combine it. Mm -hmm. Apart from the positive system mom aunties you mentioned, <laughs> mm -hmm. what about those who, you know, and I don't know, I'm still processing this. It's sometimes it's unintentional. I don't know. But there mm -hmm. are always those mm -hmm. who try to influence you in a different direction. And they're like, well, maybe no. How did you make sure to still stay aligned within your objectives? Because that's something about grad school that, you do need to stand firm in what you came here for. Um, now it's yeah, going to yeah. shift and it's going to transform, but making sure that it's still in line with what you want to do. I will say that, you know, I, so there were two different experiences. There was a law school experience at Howard, which was a shit show. Um, thank God for two or three professors there, uh, Professor Cunningham, Harold McDougall, and now I cannot think of my sister's name and she's going to kick my ass because I did not mention her. Anyway, you know who you are, former vice dean at the law school over there. I love you. Anyway, um, but besides those three, you know, law school was very, very hard because it not because of the material. I think anyone can go to law school and be a lawyer. Law, the law, as as it's taught, is really simplistic. It's just a bunch of rules. But it was really hard for me to be there because Howard Law has this kind of reputation as being the school for civil rights particularly like black civil rights and social justice. But then when you get there, it's like the amount of like elitism is just nauseating. Like, and they don't even be, some people have money, but they don't even be people with a lot of money. It's just like, you just, okay, your, your daddy went to Howard Law too. Great. Like, what am I, I mean, we even like the first week we had our, our orientation and they split us up by gender, uh, woman to woman and brother to brother. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, what in the hell is this shit about to be? And so I'm sitting in there with my little queer uh, gender is black ass in the office, in the, in the room, looking like, what is about to go on? And all these men come in wearing their little suits, and they start telling us what it takes to be a Howard Law man. A real bison. Lovely. Um, and so... What an introduction. <laughs> what an introduction. And other than that, they already had us in their little school chapel praying and doing all this other stuff forever. And I'm like, what in the hell is going on? Um, but at one point they come up and they look at, they, someone puts their finger on someone's shoes and it's like, with these shoes, you'll never be a lawyer. Like, why are your shoes scuffed? And like making these jokes. And then I'm walking out and one of my friends, as they basically called up to the stage, I'm seeing the woman to woman thing in the auditorium and they start clowning her because she has like, her face is beat and she has these lashes on. And they were like, this is not a Howard woman. Like how would a Howard lawyer look like this type of stuff? Just really antagonizing us. And ironically, those of us that were being most antagonized were queer people. 
And then so like a couple of weeks later, and this is crazy, I walk into our kind of like school locker room, which is just where we put off our law books. So it's too heavy to carry around. And they have these photos of all of the people that are assigned male at birth uh, from middle school and high school on from Facebook all over the walls. And they have this kind of articles of impeachment type of shit set up. And it's basically the upper class men challenging the other men to a football game by calling out their lack of masculinity, how feminine they are, how much they're not real men, how broke they look, how gay they look, all this other stuff. And the women, the women are supposed to come and cook. This is 2014. This is not like 30 years ago, right? And so I'm thinking like, what in the hell is going on? So I'm like, I'm not gonna go play football with these fools. Like y'all don't even got jobs. How you gonna tell me how to get a job? But I was like, you know what? This is the moment for me to flip it. So I go to the game in my little coochie cutter <laughs> booty shorts. At the time, I think I had like faux lock extensions in and I had these big ass hoops and a crop top and like a bottle of tequila. And I was like, you know, this is what we know. This is what we're going to do then. Like, <laughs> but it was it, it seemed like, you know, and that's a little comic relief, but it seemed like my whole experience there was essentially this subversive role. Right. And then as I went through the school, I would there would be more and more students that were kind of more attracted to my kind of left, you know, black left or left of black policies and ways of questioning. But so often this, the professors and the students were only interested in one mastery of the kind of black letter law as it's written, not thinking beyond it. And then two, how do I get a big law job? Mm-hmm. Right. How do you represent Howard as, you know, a person on the street where, you know, you need to be a professional black person. It's almost very Jackson Jill type of, you know, mm-hmm. ideology. And, I, you know, I even had to push when who was it that was killed first? Was it Trayvon? Was it Trayvon when I was in law school or is it Mike Brown? I forget because there was just too many murders. Happened. Oh, it was Mike Brown. And I was trying to organize us, you know, getting involved and in going down there to St. Louis. And, you know, the school didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, but I ended up, you know, having at least us sending a wreath and like doing a show of solidarity. And then the school puts it on their website. Like it was this big Howard thing. So it was just always really weird. Never wanted to take a political position, but still was living off of the kind of, you know, the whole Thurgood Marshall civil mm-hmm. rights but seemed to kind of sideline those of us that were deeply involved in the work, right? That weren't wearing the bow ties, right? That weren't wearing the women's suits to class every day, right? And so that was really tough because there was almost, beside the three people and the uh, professor of evidence that I had, there was really no one that was engaging in questions about like, how was the law affecting black people? What can we do differently? And when you would ask these questions, they would be noted as not germane. Uh, And there wasn't a real space for students to engage in research at all outside of like being a research assistant for a professor. But they're doing just, again, very basic legal interventions like maybe we should change the wording in this law. Nothing about specifically about black people besides McDougal and some of the other people that I mentioned, which is just so. Oh, Lisa Coombs Robinson. That's what I was thinking about earlier. was just really sad. And then for the Ph.D. program, I think and I think this is true of black studies in a lot of places. For people that come in and teach black studies, a lot of times they don't have degrees in black studies. And so they have a very disciplinary bent to them. Mm-hmm. So my first year, it was very hard to find an advisor that could understand that, yes, I'm coming out of the law, but I'm wanting to do something that is very, that was, that's both an intervention into the law as we know it, but also into black studies, but also into queer studies. And people were not understanding where I was trying to go. Mm-hmm. Right. So thank God for Shirley. 
and, and Xavier and others that were really helpful, but I didn't have much pushback myself in the program. And I think that was a bit of elitism is because I came in with a law degree, mm. but I did see other people who had a lot of issues. And, you know, I, my PhD was really short. I signed on to a three-year program. So I had a law degree before they gave me credit for that. I wrote a book before, um, but I ended up, you know, leaving after my second year to do a fellowship in Tennessee. So I was like, out of there. And by that point, I had already made, you know, mentorship relationships with folks like Imani and Hortense mm-hmm. Spillers, uh, you know, and Dion Brand and other people that were just like kind of pouring into me uh, from the outside, mm-hmm. KSA Lane and others. So I didn't really need to depend on yeah. my, like the people on campus as much. But I will say my entire committee was just amazing. Most of the problem I had with the school was like money things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, like, that's a common. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, and it was crazy because I was like, girl, you know, I'm a lawyer, right? Like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? I read contracts all day. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they tried to, they did screw me a little bit. I got my fellowship in Nashville the second year. And well, yeah, the, actually the third year. And it was like, I asked before I accepted, I was like, yo, I got this fellowship. It's, it's like residential, but it's not because I'm actually working, right? I'm teaching two classes while this is happening. Mm-hmm. And it's a dissertation completion fellowship. I was like, is this going to mess up my money coming from the school? Because I'm going to graduate next year. So I'm going to make sure I'm trying to stack these coins. I can just try to make, take some time in case the market is not giving me what it's giving. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And so I move all the way from Austin to Nashville. I start my first week. Haven't got my first check yet. Because, you know, at first they, you know, they back pay you like two yeah. weeks. And I get an email from the school talking about you no longer have health insurance. We're not paying you because you have a full-time fellowship somewhere else. I'm just like, this is not a residential fellowship. This, so I've had to have the provost from the school in Tennessee send emails to my department chair who still basically screwed me over. Mm. And so I was just like, y'all just took my money? Y'all like, what? It's basically <laughs> after, before you checked, you know, you, 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 yeah. you did due diligence and they still said, oh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, and I have emails from everybody. I'm like, this is crazy. And I mean, it was, for me, it was like, I, I was spoiled on the one hand that like, you know, the fellowship I had was paying 50000 a year. Great, mm-hmm. whatever. But the fellowship I had at UT Austin was like 40000 and it was like, because I worked for that. Like, I didn't do these summer jobs or these other opportunities in my grades and my publications where they were at because I was doing an economic calculus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I can get out in three years. I could not have no debt. I can take some time off before I go on the market and really do a postdoc or something if I have this money. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, now y'all know I ain't got no money in my family with no money. You know, I'm a first generation middle school graduate. Why y'all playing with me? You know, but I thought that was just like, Definitely in poor taste. And we had to have so many mutual funds for other students. And I was just like, man, it was just, it was, it was just sad. It was just sad. And I think a lot of times, again, that's what happens when you have departments that sometimes have people that are doing work in black studies, but aren't committed to the politic of black study, oh, right? Like that not really thinking about that wealth. Yeah. That is, Go ahead. Yeah, that t- I mean, listen, <laughs> you want to explain yeah. that conversation? Cause that, that's a conversation of, you're doing the work, but you all you need to do it in the back scenes and the front scene. It's not just because yeah. then it's just performative and then it's just sad. Yeah, I mean, what I mean, that was my thing was like, what are you trying to tell me that I'm making too much money <laughs> because I've, I've set my life up in a way and I played by the rules to stack this money so I can support not just myself, but my mother who's disabled, my my nieces and nephews. And you're taking this out of my pocket to give it back to a university. Girl. One of the richest public universities in the, probably the richest public university in the country. And they, they doing this off of oil money? Like, what are we talking? Where is the politics here? What are we talking about? 
you know. It's definitely but it just a, also, a conversation of just you know black bodies in these in this in mm-hmm. these spaces who are doing the work who who at least give them a, a fair wage, <laughs> you know, yes. give people a fair wage to survive and keep going. That that's bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, it sounds like a lot of money for the time, like $40,000 fellowship, which I think everyone should have sixty or $70,000 fellowships, so but that's neither here nor there. But in Austin, like, 2020, rent is not cheap. Like, I was paying almost $2,000 for a studio apartment, like, for 400 square feet. Like, we're not talking about, you know, getting money and you being rich and, like, balling out. I'm like, no, we are barely, we eat ramen noodles in here. <laughs> With two side jobs, like what is going on? <laughs> um, a mess. Yeah. A mess. No, it's 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 yeah, it's a dire. I mean, it's when you go on Twitter, just the conversations of people who are doing everything they can just to also yeah. be in grad school. It's it's something else. But I do want to ask. You know, you talked about like not having enough discourse or having really shedding light on changing the word in the law right? Mm -hmm. Trying to make Mm -hmm. that transformative. What other things do you think you took away from law school or PhD school in terms of, because when you absorb this knowledge, you change in a, in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? Did it reaffirm you? Did it, did it, are you still processing some things? Like how did that new knowledge change your life? For me, it it made me understand that neither lawyers nor kind of uh, humanities or any PhDs really understand what the hell they're talking about, right? And, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I also mean it very deeply that people go to law school for three years and at no point in the law school do you have to take any class on the history of law or on law and society or on law and anything besides you have your, your, full, your first year and a half is just completely required classes, right? So you have contracts, legal writing and research, uh, constitutional law one, criminal law, then criminal procedures, civil procedure. And then you have some electives that are basically wills, trust and estates, right? Maybe you'll take a tax law course, you know, something like that. But like at Howard, there was really, I had took a civil rights planning course, one of the dope professors I was talking about, but there's nothing required for you to have a deep engagement with how law has affected society, right? And when you go to law school and you read these Supreme Court cases, you're not getting the race of the individuals that are in the case. Mm. You're barely getting the gender if you get that, right? You don't even know oftentimes the the makeup of the Supreme Court because oftentimes it's not listed or it's not, if it is listed, it's not uh, something that is pointed to your attention, right, by the professor. And so there's all these class and racial and nationality dynamics happening under the law and all you're looking for is the rule. <laughs> not about how the rule became to be made out of people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was just so astonishing me in law school when I was talking about Lawrence versus Texas, which is the case that legalized private same-sex sex, consensual sex. And it came to be, and I didn't know this, and here I am thinking myself a damn expert, it came to be that like Tyrone Garner is this black man who had dated some white boy. The white boy gets jealous because he sees this black guy at another, at his friend's house, he thinks they're hooking up. Mm-hmm. So he calls the police and he says, there's a black man with a gun breaking into an apartment. And the police kick in the door and one says they see them having sex. The other says it's just drugs. He didn't see them having sex at all. And the other says they were just drinking. And that that kind of violation, that kind of racial profiling is actually how we got gay rights. Mm. And people don't think that like, and, and so I had to think about that. I'm like, how do we think about the portal to LGBT rights to kind of consensual sex mm-hmm. as adults comes through anti-blackness? Yeah. 
if it wasn't for Tyrone's ex-boyfriend thinking he could lay claim to body and his sexual organs, there would not even be an open gay pride at this point. Like, we don't think about that, that right? That's, a, that's an interesting story. <laughs> like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. And that's how the right to privacy among people's body actually shows up, right? And it comes through the violation of a Black person's sexual autonomy. <laughs> and the idea that he's waving a gun, right? And so you have hyper violence and all this foolishness happening. So that that just and, and then so on the PhD side, people would read the same case, and they would only kind of talk about the identities of people involved. And they would attempt to do a close reading, but they have no idea how to read the law. So it's like, wait, what you're saying is privacy, Dr. So and so, is actually not what the law is even talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's like a miss a mismatch, mm-hmm. right? It would almost be like if I was trying to uh, analyze a surgery. Yeah. I can't analyze no surgery. All I can say is they put this scissor or that little knife. Yeah. That wasn't even a knife. It was something else. <laughs> it's going to be it's gonna be two different things. They can work together, but yes. um, it's going to tell you two different things. <laughs> yes. And then, and then, honestly, they don't work separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's they the have to be yeah, together. They have to you know? So you can see the kind of shortfalls of each. But to also go back to your earlier question, though, about like the difficulties, the hardest part I had was graduating out of the PhD program with, you know, the JD and the PhD and then going on the job market. Mm. Like the PhD side was like, do you really want to do this? You have a law degree. Like, are you sure? Uh, they, we don't pay as much as the lawyers get paid or law professors. And I'm like, girl, why well, yes, if I, if I put in an application, that means I said I want to do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. why are you infantilizing me? Yeah. One. And then the law degree side, my advisors, homies, good people, just trying to get your, get my foot in the door, but like, you need to wear a tie. You need to make sure you don't dye your hair. Take out your earrings. Put on a suit. Better yet, a tux. Present your, art, present your job talk like this so it's accessible and not scary to these basic-ass white folks, basically. Mm. That's the message. <laughs> And I basically, to everybody, was like, fuck all this. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, honestly, I did lose some really great jobs. But I also now have a job where I can do, you know, have, have relative freedom. You know, there's always some bullshit, I think, at any school. But, you know, <laughs> there was, it was so interesting going to these job talks and doing these interviews and people being mesmerized by, like, how smart we didn't know I was. But also being shook at, like, this person has blonde locks. Like, what is going on? Yeah, the, the aesthetics doesn't match, but it doesn't match it for them, right? It doesn't match yeah. their traditional way of, of viewing how. Mm-hmm. I mean, my voice, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, let, let's be very. I'm like, hello, and they're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. What do we? I mean, just even this morning, just the, yeah. I'm, I'm minding my own business, walking out of my building, and <laughs> you have such a small, cute voice. I have a raspy voice. I'm like. Well, thank you. I'm like, what yeah. do you say? It's like, so they sometimes they just treat you based off of just the aesthetics. But uh, <laughs> and, and and you know, for me, it's it's important that they did that, right? Because mm-hmm. it showed me that I'm also living my pedagogy, mm-hmm. right? My my role was never to fit into the law, right? Mm-hmm. It was to engage the law from the standpoint that I come from, and to bear witness to the ways in which it affects my life, but also others. And I can't do that if I'm trying to become. Mm-hmm right a steward of the law <laughs> right and and wear these stodgy outfits and talk like a law professor and mm-hmm. no because first of all if I, if I do what you do we're going to remain doomed yeah we really are <laughs> 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 yeah. you don't even like what you do yeah. <laughs>
and you know it's we can all do what we do and we do it our way best <laughs> exactly. exactly but tell us you know some of the joys you know we, that yes there are hardships we know there's hardships and everything but what what are some of your joys that you can remember the memories some some that are persisting and continuing that you just wouldn't give up for anything whether it's the connections you've made the that like you know that aha moment you had with that story you're like wait wait a minute backtrack mm-hmm. this explain this mm-hmm. to me what yeah. are some of the those that those feelings that you know you can only get in certain places sometimes uh either as a student or as a professor or both both oh my god i mean like as a student at tufts i think i just had really the best the best time ever i never thought i would say that about a pwi but i just had an amazing time i mean uh, we, there was so much protest. I was president of the Black Student Union for like three years there. And we just brought so many students together to create our Black Studies Department and a whole kind of race and social justice programming there. Uh, and we were just, I mean, one time we took over the president's office for like six hours. And, we, and they were going to call the police and the white people uh, had formed a chain around the building so he wouldn't get arrested. No. Right. And that's how we had done so much like intercommunal solidarity to work where they're ready to go to jail because they're like people of color can't get arrested they're kicked out right and one time we like well, crashed closure, this is not an advocacy <laughs> for anyone to go if you do so <laughs> you are doing so on your own <laughs> yes okay but no like one day we crashed graduation for the year the students are graduating before us that was admitted students say and we walked up and we were all supposed to be giving speeches mm-hmm. and we yeah. took off our jackets and we had these white and black t-shirts that said on the back ask me about my stu- my experience as a student of color at tufts <laughs> it was like hundreds of admitted students come to just here. And so like we were doing stuff like that. And then we were organizing about Trayvon. And I remember I was like in, in the in the inner city of Boston, just doing like a little poetry circle and just like speaking out after like Occupy Wall Street had happened, Occupy Boston. And then, you know, Trayvon got killed. And I was sitting there and I was like, yo, is that Ruha Benjamin? What? And so like I was just rapping with her, just talking about all the issues and creating these kind of personal connections. And so I think that for undergrad, it was really about like becoming marrying the theory with the kind of activism Mm. right and i think that the law school was about understanding how far like structures of power are from people's lived experiences but also how much they literally determine people's lives Mm. right how how a comma can be the difference between you know a i would say what is it like a a dismissed case maybe in a life sentence right just the way a statute is written mm-hmm. and to be able to tell that story if you can't tell a good story in your emotions when you're lawyering a case someone could be put away forever because you're not a strong writer you're not a strong story storyteller mm-hmm. or a jury doesn't believe you as a lawyer right so just those oration skills that we get being black half the time mm-hmm. or in the church or performing come in come into such sharp relief Whereas in other places, we are kind of stigmatized, Mm -hmm. right, for the way that we speak or our affect or how performative we can be, right? And Mm -hmm. just thinking about the things that uh, that have been used to kind of castigate Black people are oftentimes the things that could save the whole world, right? And so it's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing to see that. And I would say that now... You know I, what I'm what I'm so proud of, and I'll also well backtrack. One of my most favorite moments was when I was at Dartmouth doing some summer fellowship, and I was like, I can't get nobody to work with me. Nobody understands my work, and who walks in the damn room but Fred Moten and Horton Spillers? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna ask for ten Spillers to be my advisor. I'm not gonna do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And she's like, young man, do you have something to say to me? <laughs> <laughs> 
and those two end up being the ones that workshop my uh, my proposal for my dissertation, mm. and they just turn it into gold just through uh, just conversation. Mm. And after that, we go into a barbecue. Uh, Doctor Spiller is over there eating this corn on the cob, and she just mad. At I'm like, what is going on? She was like, that damn Trump. He's a fucking virus on America. <laughs> And I was like, I'm just looking at her, like, loving her work so much. I was like, wait, Dr. Spiller's cusses? And then that night we went out. And this woman, like, drank me under the table with these shots of bourbon. I'm like, baby, I got to go home. I got to go back to my little dorm room. <laughs> Are you done? I'm like, yes, ma'am. I have to. I have to rest. Like, I'm not going to make it out here. So just also seeing, like, the humanity of the people that I really idolized, mm -hmm. right, as a – as a freshman student at Tufts, as a sophomore student in Black Feminist Thought, and then getting to meet them and seeing their humanity and seeing uh, their insistence on joy, mm -hmm. right? Even as they're riding through the kind of death of, of Black people every day, or as Christina would say, maybe like kind of living in this wake, mm -hmm. right? And like doing this work of defending the dead, right? And doing this kind of yeah. care and wake work. Um, and now my, my greatest kind of feelings are like seeing my Black students, even me white students in law school, really make the connections mm -hmm. uh, between like the laws that's written and the law as a ch as children as we are meant to understand it and how the root of so many of our problems is not just the laws that's written, but the laws we practice in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Mm -hmm. People confronting the police officer within, mm -hmm. right? The white supremacist or the anti-black person within mm -hmm. and unbecoming that in a kind of uh, a semester with me or over, you know, they've had my classes for two or three years, and now I'm about to come up with my first class of graduating students, and it's so crazy to kind of think about it. <laughs> but even this week, you know, I, we supported this bill in the, in the House in Minnesota, and it just passed, the House is going on to the Senate now, but an office for missing and murdered black women and girls, mm -hmm. right? And so having an organization that could come out and be in front, right, and mm -hmm. talk about uh, these issues with authority and have, you know, hundreds of people really listen you know, to the work that we're trying to do and talk and talk about with authority. So, I, I mean, really, I just really seeing the impact on people's day to day lives and also, you know, seeing when my students are pushing me to think differently, yeah. you know, and now I have students that are like doing too much. They're like, we were in class today and I was like, yo, we ain't even on that book. It's like, yeah, I read three weeks ahead. Chill. Because <laughs> <laughs> like when you first came to my class a year and a half ago, you were like, a book a week? What is this? This is not a PhD program. Now look at you. Mm -hmm. Look at that. Yeah, that that must be a good feeling. <laughs> and you know, I, I just I do wanna if we kind of just like putting this all together. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is there something like a song, a book, a any a piece of art, anything mm -hmm. that you think stayed with you throughout gra your graduate school or up until your professional career? Was there something that lifted you up that you could go to? Was it a community, a support oh, group? Lord, um, <laughs> I know. I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get all my sweet, all my sweet tea here. Um, <laughs> there were a couple of books for sure. I always came back to uh, "In the Wake" by Christina Sharp yeah. and "Lose Your Mother" by Cydia Hartman. Yeah. I and then everything by Alexis Pauling Gums. Just everything, everything mm -hmm. she touches. Just because it reminded me of the, of the beauty of writing. And like hard stories, painful stories don't have to be painful to read, right? The text doesn't have to be painful. Cause so much critical theory, it's like, what the fuck? Like, why are you saying this like this? 
like this is not, this first of all you can never say this sentence out loud because your throat would be dry it's too many words mm-hmm. right it's just like not it's not making but sense that's all right like but i think the the feminist marine mammals from a black mm-hmm. feminist pet like standpoint by alexis pauline gums i was like yes. how did you do this because yes. I, remember, I remember reading yes. it on a plane <laughs> And this white lady sitting next to me, she she like looked at me, she looked at the book and she tried to make sense like black feminism and marine mammals. Like what is this? They're taking over. <laughs> like she just left it alone. And I was like, yeah, there's an art in here. It was, yeah. And that's the importance of it. Like, cause there, there is an art, there's a craft. And like people, and this is just my little side tangent and my, my uh, spiel against the world and against legal writing as well is that like writing should be beautiful. Writing should be a, and reading should be a pleasurable experience, mm-hmm. right? At least the text itself. It should take you somewhere. It should be musical, you know, like Mo, like Morrison or or Baldwin or Maya Angelou. Like, girl, make this right. Right, reading should not be just labor, mm-hmm. you know. So on the one hand, there's the books, and then there's a seat at the table by Solange. That was my album. Uh, always, <laughs> yes, and then I always come back to Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope because the political analysis on that is just amazing and it's janet and then just being outdoors mm-hmm. i was kayaking like every day in austin i was oh, just like yo <laughs> yes you gotta keep your body right so your mind can do its work mm-hmm. um and then of course just being within black and black queer community not just in austin but you know going to chicago all the time being taking the weekend trips down to houston or new orleans uh just to just sit and be amongst black people that did not know me uh, and being just reminded <laughs> Well, yeah, just being blessed your mind of like, this is what black life looks like. Like life goes on. You've had a terrible exchange with your advisor this week Mm -hmm. who really wants the best for you. But I don't want to talk about his ass right now, right? (laughs) I want to sit here and damn in the French Quarter and have me some bourbon and some hookah and look at black people carrying on. Right? (laughs) It reminds you, this is why I do it. Yeah, it reminds you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That that wraps up. That wraps up my week nicely. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't have any bad interactions, but you know, just when you go through things. But (laughs) yeah, and I would say one last place I I used to go to all the time after during law school, and then even now is during law school. I told you I did that study abroad program in South Africa in Cape Town. Mm And every, I've tried to go back every year, but COVID has ruined things. But like, I would go back at least like once a year and just be like, let me just be in an entirely black space. Mm. And like, look at these black people that have a different, but like not a, as, as a conscious relationship to slavery and their struggles, more colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. And like, how does that show up? And looking at the ways, the new ways they were resisting, mm-hmm. uh, resisting like colonialism, but also dealing with like decolonial things. Mm-hmm. It's like creating new stuff, but also being very connected with their ancestors and past. Mm-hmm. And then them, you know, the annoying thing was it was always trying to tell me that, oh, you know, you're Kosa or you're Zulu. I'm like, girl, I'm from West Africa. And I, I'm not, <laughs> like, they'd be like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm slavery glad was you built. Because I was going to say, <laughs> I was like, I'm from the yeah. West. And you better make sure you know. Girl, we're from Ghana in there. Okay, Sierra Leone. Like, we don't. I'm, I'm, I'm in the Senegal area, but you know, as well, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it was all Nigeria at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, let's not Nigeria. bring them into the conversation because they overtake things. Watch, watch them give me flack. <laughs> <laughs> not you calling them imperial, look. 
no, no, they're lovely. They're lovely. <laughs> yes, we love some good old jollof rice. We love well, it. we call it chamber gin, but that's another discussion. We we can do this all day. We can. We can. I'm, like I'm not gonna get in that fight. I like my collard greens and my barbecue. <laughs> that's why I sit down. I'm like, I'll eat anything. You know, we. Just- <laughs> okay, but if it's made by black people, I will most likely eat it. But I don't know. In South Africa, then fish. I was like, I don't like no fish that's looking at me. Why are you looking at me, fish? Why you still got your skin on? I don't like that. It is. <laughs> Yeah, the, the you have to kind of grow up with that when they just take the I the one thing that I'm just not going to do is like clean fish. That's just I don't know you you I, yeah. I can't I, I just personally can't. I don't know how to do it. I have to buy my fish already filleted. My grandpa and grandma used it all the time, and they taught me as a child. But I think it just traumatized me, and I'm just like I'm not. And I love to cook, but I'm like that's the thing. I I can't grab something's guts out of it. Just, it does. It's not meant to be cooked by me then. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for joining. Uh, any last yeah. words? Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think it's just important for all of us to remember that, you know, the people that came before us are meant to both guide us by their example and sometimes their words mm. uh, and, and show us like what's possible. But they're also not uh, markers for what's impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think too often we mold ourselves after our idols or mold ourselves after the people that have been forced, right, to be our mentors or advisors or whatever. And our role isn't to necessarily remake the model they have. Our goal is to come in and understand that our life experiences alone, right, our embodied knowledge alone adds to the kind of body of work, right, going back uh, all the way back to West Africa, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we have to understand our pedagogies and our ways of being and our methodologies as not just being ours, not just being the persons before us, but being an ancestral way of knowing, yeah. right? And I think too often we disconnect ourselves and we get stuck either in the kind of cultural moment of now, yeah. we get stuck in the human rights movement or reconstruction, or even on the slave ship, right? But not thinking about what are the interconnected ways, right, that our people going before the slave ship and on it would look at the world and think right now. And I, I think for me, it's been important to not just look at the law through a black lens or a queer lens or a black lens, even just like a regular legal lens, but through the lens of those people that came before us. Mm-hmm. But what would justice look like for all of those ancestors if they sat around the table, if they debated this thing? What would freedom look like, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think sometimes we just get stuck in the critique of now, in the pushback of now, but we exist outside of space and time. So I would encourage, uh, you and myself and anyone that happens to listen to this, to just remember that, you know, our life is one melody in a freedom song, you know? And if you don't master your melody, the whole track is fucked up. Like <laughs> <laughs> just skipping on repeat, like what's going on? <laughs> you just annoyed, so you just throw everything out, but no, you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> throw it all away, look. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I'll post all your information in the bio. That's so um, everyone will be able to find you. And um, yes. but thank you so much. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.